Luke chapter 24. We're kind of using Luke this year uh, to kind of track um, with what happened on Holy Week. And uh, so we're picking up in the first 12 verses of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was to Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. God bless the reading of his word this morning, and why don't we pray? Father, there are times when it is more difficult for us to listen. There are times that is more difficult for us to speak, times when it is more difficult for us to believe and grasp. I ask that uh, your spirit would come this morning and help us to believe that which ordinarily is unbelievable grasp not just a fact, but to be able to grasp the import of that fact. That only happens when the Spirit works. And so we need the Spirit to be at work this morning. And we trust that out of your goodness... And the desire to bring glory to your Son, that you would work by the Spirit in this way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure if it's the, uh, the brightest thing I've ever done as a parent. I will let others judge me, maybe. I don't know. But I'm currently watching uh, American Crime Story, the O.J. Simpson story, with my oldest child. It's interesting because I'll pause it periodically and give them, uh, give my child the background of what's going on. And, uh, you know, they weren't alive in 1992. They don't know that DNA was basically brand new in terms of uh, crimes and trials and all of that stuff. So there's a lot of discussion about race and uh, American history. And so this is, in a sense, a teaching aspect, unfortunately. Thanks to the screenwriters, there's times I have to remind them 
there are words that they say that we don't say. One of the things that happens in the course of this story is uh, O.J. leaves the house. He's supposed to turn himself into the police one day. And there's all sorts of uh, delays that take place because O.J. is a mess. Just like you, he didn't want to go to jail. And so he's a mess, and, and Kardashian comes in, he finds him, and he's kind of swinging a gun around, and he occasionally points it at himself, and he's got a, a suicide note that's written, and it is just a horror scene. And one of uh, O.J.'s longtime friends pulls up outside in his white Bronco. And so while Kardashian leaves the room to talk on the phone with Shapiro, who's wondering what in the world is going on, he's supposed to be at the police station already, The two of them leave, but Kardashian doesn't know what has happened. All he knows is that O.J. is in a suicidal state of mind, and he's left the suicide note. And so he and Shapiro both believe that O.J. has killed himself. Now, I don't know if the next part is dramatic license, you know, artistic license or whether this actually happened but there's this scene of Robert Kardashian going in to OJ's family and telling them that the juice is dead that their their son their father has taken his own life Shapiro goes home thinking it's all over himself he thinks he has done this deed. The trial and all the drama is maybe just beginning, but O.J. is gone. Imagine their surprise when someone tells them to watch the TV because there is a white Bronco being followed by a bunch of police cars down the highway in L.A., and O.J.'s in the back seat with a the gun. There, in a sense, was uh, probably some relief but also a lot of concern. The man they thought was dead is still alive and yet not yet safe. Not safe from himself, not safe from the police. The resurrection of Jesus is not like that. The big idea this morning is that the reality of the promised resurrection shocks people. And it should shock people. The resurrection is perplexing to this very day. We see here the the text, these women. We have Mary Magdalene. We have Mary. We have Joanna. And then there's a couple of other women whose names are not given. And they decide on the first day of the week because the Sabbath is now over, to go and to finish that which has begun. Because when Jesus was removed from the cross, uh, he was hastily buried in this tomb. Now, Joseph of Arimathea and his men did a quick job of trying to wrap the spices around Jesus. They began the process of preparing him, his body for burial, but that was actually a multi-day process. And so the women come at the end of the Sabbath, in order to finish that process. Let's keep in mind, they didn't just think he was dead. 
they were not like Kardashian and Shapiro who reasoned, well, he must be dead. He must have killed himself. These were people who saw him die. They saw, from the testimony of the other gospel writers, these people, these women, were at the crucifixion. They witnessed it. They saw the soldiers poke his side with the spear. They saw the blood and the water flow out. They saw him not move, not breathe. They saw that he was dead. They saw him taken away. They saw him wrapped in the spices. They knew where his grave was. They knew he was dead. This was not simply, we think he may have died. And so they show up to finish this process, and nothing is as they expect it. Luke doesn't mention this, but the guard, the Roman centurions that they expected to find there that we see from other gospel writers, they're gone. The stone that they had worried about having to move was rolled away. They weren't sure what was going on. But the obstacle that they feared was now no obstacle. There's no soldiers who will keep them away from the grave, and there is no stone that will keep them outside. And so they enter. And this is not how they imagined it either because they don't find the body. Jesus is gone. His body is gone. They most likely would have feared that perhaps his body was stolen, but there are the grave clothes. Now, it's reasonable that someone may have come in and you know, let's let's put on our Colombo hat for a second here, and and uh, you know, someone may have wanted the spices. Grave robbing was a popular sort of uh, thing at that point in time. People wanted the money that they could get from the spices, but you don't steal the whole body. And the grave clothes, the wrappings, are just there in a pile. The text says. They were perplexed. That is probably the understatement of the century. They were perplexed. They were at a loss. They were in deep weeds. They were without a clue. And you know what? Tragedy can do that to you. Tragedy, like seeing the one you love murdered, can do that to you. So that things that should make sense to you don't always make sense. I had a little bit of that this week. No tragedy was involved. Well, maybe it was tragic. I don't know. Ask my parent, ask my wife. It was a long week. I had gone to Costco. I had gotten a bunch of supplies for today and for Presbytery. And so I brought a bunch of stuff into the, uh, the kitchen over there. And I was perplexed. Something didn't seem right. I didn't know what it was. But, it, you know, you just have that sense of, what's wrong? Something's out of place. Something's not as it should be. I don't know what's going on. Later that day, I see Mark McCurdy poking around over there. I'm getting ready to go to the gym, but I go over and I say hi to Mark. And you know what? He changed the door in the kitchen so that it no longer swings in, but rather swings out. So 
be prepared, those of you who are going to be walking around the kitchen today. Uh, the traffic pattern has changed. Maybe we should put a sign up, just like the state does, okay? <laughs> you don't want to walk into the door as it opens into your face. Um, that's what was different. But I couldn't grasp. I was perplexed. For people today, the resurrection is still perplexing. They still can't wrap their minds around it because it is out of the scope of experience. I mean, have you met anyone who was raised from the dead? I mean, I'm not talking about someone who, you know, had a heart attack or, or you know, had a, a swimming incident and they're, this, the, the EMTs show up and do CPR and all, all is well now. I'm not talking about that. Someone dead and buried three days comes back to life. I think that's outside of your realm of experience. I don't think this happens as much as some television evangelists want you to think that it happens. <laughs> and yet, they haven't proved that it ever actually happened. Okay? It is sui generis. It is unique. And because it is unique, most people think it couldn't have happened. And therefore, our faith is foolish. And so the human mind left to its own devices, its own resources, is legitimately at a loss to comprehend how a man who has been dead for three days can rise again. The evidence adds up to a conclusion that is beyond our experience to accept. Secondly, though, this is, we're not at the end of this, this particular story, and we're not at the end of thinking through the resurrection. Our belief in the resurrection is really rooted in Revelation. You see, God did not leave these women at the tomb to their own devices, to their own resources. We see glimpses of his faithfulness in what transpires next because they turn around and they see two men who stood by them in dazzling apparel. I think this is, one, this is the passage that um, Sally Lloyd-Jones gets for uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. All of the angels have this dazzling quality about them. And here it is. Two angels are present to talk to them, to encourage them, to instruct them a little bit in what has happened. And they really kind of cut to the point. And they say, why, and this is better translated, do you seek the living one among the dead? He once was dead, but he no longer is. This is, as I mentioned, unlike... OJ, because the one who has life in himself could not be constrained, could not be restrained, could not be detained by death. But because of that uncorruptible power of life within himself, because this human being is united forever to the eternal Son, the decay that we expect, the decomp that we expect, didn't happen. 
our children saw a couple of those time-lapsed uh, photographs, you know, of a, of a dead body of like an animal decomposing. That didn't happen here. But rather, life went in reverse, so to speak, because the dead man became a live man and walked out of that tomb because Jesus has the power of indestructible life. Because the Father has accepted His payment for our sins such that all who trust in Him are justified. Because of that, Jesus rose again. That's the interpretation. But the angels, when they're speaking to the women, say, remember how He told you. Ladies, he's saying, this shouldn't surprise you. Jesus has been telling you about this for quite some time. He was telling you about his sufferings, but he was also telling you about his triumph. He told you about his shame, but he also told you about his glory and rising again on the third day. Those things didn't connect in the minds of these women. Traumatized, perhaps, they had forgotten all that he had said. But we have these words as well in order to remind us that that which seems unthinkable to us has happened. Scripture not only records the fact of the resurrection, but Scripture records the promises of the resurrection. And Scripture also records the interpretation of the resurrection. And so in the Old Testament, we've got these promises of it. In the Gospels, we have Jesus himself clearly promising that it's going to take place. We have the record of it actually taking place in all four gospel accounts, and then in the letters of Paul and Peter and John, we have the interpretation of what it means, why it's important. And so we believe in the resurrection because it was revealed before it happened. Thirdly, we respond by revealing the resurrection to others. You see, uh, Luke says, they remembered his words now all of a sudden, those words of Jesus come back to the forefront of their mind. They're no longer preoccupied with the tasks they think they have to perform because he's dead. The penny dropped because of the spirit being at work in them. But here's what happens. They didn't just go, ah, oh, that's nice. Now I can return back to what I was doing. I can go back to my day. They went back to the 11 and the rest of the apostles. And, and Luke says, told these things to them. They revealed what had happened and the fact that reminded them that Jesus had told us about these things to these disciples. But once again, we see that the 11 disciples heard them but didn't quite understand just like the women hadn't. And so we don't have this sense of, 
well, you know, the apostles, uh, they're, they're more godly people and they're smarter people and, and they understood what those women didn't understand. We don't have that. They were just as perplexed as the women. Luke recounts that these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Don't you love the honesty that's here? That the apostles who had uh, walked with Jesus and been instructed by Jesus for three years and had heard all of this still found it to be unbelievable? They were not predisposed to believe it. They were not kind of uh, waiting in their room. Jesus said three days. When, when is that again? When, when should we show up to make sure it happened? They were not anticipating any of this. They were hiding in a room in fear that the authorities would come for them too. They were not predisposed to believe in the resurrection. Despite hearing Jesus talk about the resurrection... And so this reminds me, and it ought to remind you, that faith in the resurrection is in fact a gift from God. Believing it should mean that we want to share it with others. Now we don't have the account here just yet. It comes later in Luke, and we're not actually going to get it to it today. The, the disciples all believe it, and as we see in Acts, begin to preach it, which is what leads uh, Chuck Colson to say this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Now that sounds a little strange now, doesn't it? Here we have one of the greatest crimes of the 1970s, um, and he says that that proves to him that the resurrection is true. Let's listen to Chuck, as he continues, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Twelve men who lived for the truth of the resurrection through opposition. Either they all had the same odd grand delusion, which is impossible. They were the strongest liars ever, which is impossible, because now you have twelve people. For one person maybe to die on a lie, you can might you might buy. But 12, I'm not buying it. But still, don't be surprised when you hear, when you tell someone about the resurrection of Jesus, 
Don't be surprised if they scratch their heads too. Just as the women at the tomb, just as the 12 apostles, just as you probably did the first 50 times you heard about the resurrection. But instead, pray for God to open hearts and minds so that the penny would drop. And just as it did with the women and later with the 11, they too would not only believe, but proclaim. So the possibility of resurrection was really not in the minds of the eleven, nor was it in the minds of the women who followed Jesus. Even though he had spoken about it, they hadn't entertained it as a reasonable, possible explanation for the events that transpired that morning. Believing in the resurrection is not natural. It's not normal. If you believe that Jesus is the God-man, the eternal Son incarnate, then of course it makes perfect sense. How could it not happen? But we only believe that on the testimony of Scripture too. It all brings us back to the Scriptures. Will we rely upon our experience our reason, our logic, or we will, will we submit our minds and our hearts to the reasoning, logic, interpretation, and testimony of this event by God himself and the scriptures? That's really what it boils down to. Let's pray. Father, in a sense, I, I think the apostles would rather have not believed in the resurrection. They could have just gone back to whatever they were doing before. They could have had ordinary lives, uncomplicated lives, peaceful lives, small little lives back in their small little worlds instead of, instead of spreading out throughout the known world, to make Jesus known. But we thank you that the Holy Spirit enabled them to believe, empowered them to testify, so that we, centuries, millennia later, the message of Jesus still rings out, and it still rings true. Father, help us to believe. You know each of our hearts and you know the places where we struggle to believe. And may you, by your Spirit, address those struggles, address those doubts, address those fears. Today and in the days to come, so that we can be confident not just of a historical fact, but that we can be confident that you love us and that we have hope. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.